All right, let's go. Cisco is ordered by the U.S. District Court of Virginia to pay $1.9 billion to Centripetal Networks Incorporated in what may be the largest patent infringement damages award ever. All this and more on Stuff You Should Know About IP. Okay, so Tom, please explain to me this case of Cisco, or sorry, Centripetal Networks Inc. versus Cisco, and how did we get to $1.9 billion in damage? That's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. What a great way to start the day, right? Oh, yeah. Great way to start the day is talking about an almost $2 billion patent verdict, right? (laughs) And a cup of Tim Hortons coffee. Of course, of course. So anyway, so we have this, I'm going to (sighs) sneeze. Should we start over? No. No. Okay. We should definitely put a copyright on that sneeze, though. Okay. So anyway. <laughs> well, actually. Anyway, the biggest the, the biggest verdict of all time, centripetal against Cisco, just occurred. Now, by the way, a few interesting things about this. Number one, it was one point nine billion, right? Billion. Two, there was royalty payments on top of that, which are ten percent for the first three years. 5% for the remaining for the next three years. So there, you know, the claim is that this thing could be like a two and a half to three and a half billion dollar verdict all in. But so here are some interesting things about it. Number one, there's five patents in the suit. Four of them were found to be literally infringed. So that's what gets us started. This case started in February of 2018. And a few things jump out in my mind. So it's like almost three years, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine how many lawyers have been feeding off this case (laughs) for three years, right? It's almost like they'd be sad to see it come to a close. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, well, one side is, I don't know whether the plaintiff's firm took it on a contingency. If they did, they'd be pretty excited. Could you imagine a third of 1.9 billion for your firm? Do, Do firms take cases like this on contingency? Well, contingency. I don't cases, want to distract from the topic. No, no, that's okay. I never heard of that. Cases are typically the thing of personal injury lawyers, right? Yeah, that's what but, I thought. But in the '90s, and I might have my dates wrong, I might have the facts slightly off, but the concept is: in the '90s, there was this law firm, a patent firm, I think it was in Chicago, that was offered to take the case on a contingency basis, and they said no. They ended up earning three million dollars in fees. The verdict was a hundred million. So they would have gotten 30 million in fees. <laughs> they switched to all like contingency cases. So there are definitely firms out there that take these cases on a contingency. And this would be a great example of one that would, would want to, but the, the trade-off though is here's the trade-off though. The nice thing about getting your fees, which in these cases are maybe six, seven, eight hundred dollars an hour, maybe nine hundred dollars an hour, depending upon where the lawyers are, maybe more. The nice thing is you're getting paid for three years. You're getting paid. You're paying your associates. There's got there's got to be you know a dozen people on this case. Yeah. You have paralegals. You have lawyers that all need to be paid. And if your firm isn't well healed with big pockets deep pockets, you're not going to be able to support a three-year litigation with all these people not getting paid. So, I mean, maybe it's bankable. Maybe you can go to a bank and get, get loans. But anyway, the point is, it's a, um, 
there's a great value if you can do them on a contingent, but what if after three years you lose right. and you get no cause, you know, now you're totally screwed. But anyway, so lawyers are feeding off this case and Here's the sad thing for Cisco, okay? In addition to, I mean, they were willful infringers, so maybe it's not that sad, but, but here's the sad thing. They spend millions on defense of this patent infringement case, right? Millions. And at the end of it all, they lose. And they end up paying out almost $2 billion or more when you include the royalty. So it's, this patent litigation game, it used to be referred to as the sport of kings, because it's so expensive, which is why it doesn't surprise you that these cases typically settle mm. because it's such a high stakes game, right? I mean, you're talking about years of litigation and yeah, it could be a $2 billion verdict, which is great for one side, terrible for the other, yeah. but it could be a no cause, which then is pretty good for one side, terrible for the other. I say pretty good because if there's a no cause and Cisco were to win, and they said there was no infringement, then yeah, they're thrilled that they staved off this big, ugly verdict, but they still had to pay a fortune in legal fees, still be distracted for three years, still have this black cloud hanging over their head. So if you're a defendant in a patent case, there's no way to win. I mean, right. your best case scenario is to spend a shit ton of money on legal fees, and then you still have to, um, you know, you, you win, you get to just do what you were doing before. Right. So Anyway, so that's interesting. The other thing that they went out of their way to say in this article was that the court held, you know, in favor of the plaintiff by a preponderance of the evidence, which is just kind of a, a side note to say that these cases are, um, these cases are not beyond a reasonable doubt. They're a preponderance of the evidence, which is essentially more likely than not. So, you know, it's like if you were giving it percentages, it's like 51%, right? Right. It's not like 90%, which you would kind of assess to beyond a reasonable doubt. It's like 51%. The other big thing in this is that they used a royalty uh, system on top. So how do you assess a royalty? When you're talking about, you know, if you're buying a house, you know, it's kind of easy to get comparables, Right. I'm buying a house in a neighborhood and 10 other houses have sold in the past five years or five months. And they were all about this price. And that means mine is worth a little bit more, a little bit less, right? Right. How do you do that when you're assessing reasonable royalties in a patent infringement case? Luckily, in this case, and I say luckily for, um, for the sake of Centripetal, they had just negotiated a deal with a company called Keysight. And that deal was a lump sum payment of 25 million plus a 10% royalty over the first three years for competitive sales of competitive products. And then 3%, I'm sorry, 10%, then 5% for royalties based upon the sales of non-competitive products. Right. Now, the difference there was with the key site um, settlement, by the way, I'm just turning this because I feel like I'm not, I'm not lit up that well, but- yeah, it's a little, it's a little dark. If dark. you uh, tilt it down a little bit, it might be better. Tilt your camera down. Maybe that's better. But anyway, so in this Keysight case, the difference was Keysight took a license to the entire centripetal portfolio. In this case, it's only four patents. So, and I don't know the size of the portfolio, but let's say it's 50 patents or 20 patents. It's certainly a lot more 
than four patents in the Cisco case. So they ended up coming up with 10 year or 10% royalty for three years at all products that infringe these patents and then 5% for the next three years. This is a lot of money. Yeah. So the other interesting thing is, yes, it's 1.9 billion, right? But the damage award was not 1.9 billion. The, the actual damages were like yeah. 700 million or something, right. right? 700 million. But so 700 million turns into 1.9 billion, right? How does that happen? Well, there's this thing called, uh, it used to be called um, treble damages waste based upon willful infringement. In, in like 2016, the US Supreme Court changed the, it a little bit. They call it enhanced damages and they, they don't have the same restrictions that they used to have. But without boring yeah. people to death with the details, it's still, you can, all, you can triple damages for willful infringement. Right. And willful infringement, you knew about it and you infringed anyway. Right. So a lot of times what companies will do is they'll get opinions of non-infringement from their, you know, their legal counsel so that they could use that to defend themselves in a case of patent infringement. You know, yeah, we knew about the patents maybe, but our lawyer told us we didn't infringe. And that's big because it just turned a $700 million uh, damages case into almost 2 billion, right? That's crazy. Now, in this case, they, you know, I just read a little bit on the, of an article about this and it said, there were discussions between Centripetal and Cisco under NDA where technology was disclosed by Centripetal to Cisco. And that created a situation where Cisco clearly knew about it. So they basically said that they knew about it. They infringed anyway. And that really offends courts, right? Because you knew about it. It's not like, I mean, there's a zillion patents out there, right? I mean, there are, you know, millions of patents out in the world. And I don't know what the numbers are up to now, but they're pretty high. So imagine, how do you know every single patent out there and whether you're infringing it? Well, good news is if you don't know about it, you can't be hit with you know, enhanced damages like this because right. you didn't know. The bad news is, regardless of whether you knew about it, if you are an infringer, you are an infringer and you're going to pay. Right. So, so what some companies do is they do these things called freedom to operate searches, which essentially are searches before you go to market, before you commercialize to determine whether there's any patents out there that are going to sting you when you get to market, right? Whether you're yeah. infringing any of these. So people spend a fairly you know, large sum of money, which they should, because if you're gonna spend you know, millions launching a new product, wherever you are in the world, it's worth it to spend you know, five, 10, 15, 20,000 on a freedom to operate search to make sure you're not gonna be infringing someone. The downside of freedom to operate searches is if you discover a patent that you're infringing and you do it anyway, you're at risk of enhanced damages. The plus side of doing a freedom to operate search is if you know about it, at least you can make an informed decision, right? Because you cannot use as an excuse, I didn't know about it, right? You can't, that's right. not 
excuse in patent. So, so that's an interesting question that I had is, I mean, in this case, we know that Cisco knew about it because they had that information um, related to the patents uh, disclosed to them by Centripetal under NDA. Right. But uh, how, I mean, that's a such an egregious infringement, then it's, it's, I can understand how the court came to the decision on the judgment, but what about other cases where, where willfulness is, 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 is uh, maybe assumed or, or even implied or, or inferred, but not, not easily provable? Yeah, if it's not, yeah, I mean, that's a big question is, can you prove it? Can you prove the new? I was litigating a patent case once, and I'm in the deposition with an with the other side. So so we're we're suing them for patent infringement. And I didn't even expect this. I asked the engineer, you know, tell me how you developed your product. And because he was an honest guy, you know, he doesn't know all about the legal ins and outs. He just said, I found this patent and um, <laughs> you know. And I, I thought, wow, he just admitted to willful infringement, but he doesn't even know he did. Oh, so I kept my mouth shut and moved on. <laughs> luckily, was that in a deposition, did you say? Deposition, yeah. Luckily, I was <laughs> against a non-registered patent lawyer, you know, in the litigation. Oh, I don't even think he knew what hit him at that Good point. Guy. The point is, it's usually not that obvious, right? You don't, and I had one case once, I had a copyright infringement case where it was, um, or no, it was a patent infringement case. And the guy didn't say he he um, copied the patent, but he said, oh, I just bought their product and I copied it. And, you know, that's a little bit less because you don't know if something's patented unless it's marked, right? Sure. Unless you do a search. But anyway, so in this case, you know, there's probably, there, I didn't see the documentation on it, but there must have been some pretty compelling evidence to justify two and a half times the damage award to get them up to like almost $2 billion. Uh, there was something else I read in this article and then, you know, we can, we can move on, but uh, there's something else that st stood out to me that I don't think I fully understood. And, and maybe it's not as much of a thing as I, as I read it to be, but uh, was something about uh, literal, literally infringed was a term used and right. uh, it was literally infringed. It was all of the claims so that made me curious about uh, infringement and like, I guess, uh, uh, made me ask myself the question, what are, are there varying degrees of infringement? Like if a, if a patent has five claims and you violate one, do you have to pay less for infringing uh, one claim as you would five claims? Like, is that yeah. a thing or no? Yeah, essentially. So imagine a patent document, right? You've got like, maybe it's this thick, you know, it's like 50 pages or hundred pages or 20 pages. At the very end of the document are these things called claims. And the claims are essentially the inventor claiming his or her rights, you know, defining the property right that's being owned, you know, that, that, that they, that, you know, my piece of property, my house is on a lot that's 200 feet in the front, 200 feet in the back and, you know, 500 feet along each side. That's my property right. And if you step on it, if you come over, you're trespassing. The claim is the same way. It's basically defining the meets and bounds of your invention. Hmm. You know, I own this. This is mine. I own a chair. You're an apparatus for sitting comprised of a back, a seat, 
and one or more legs. So let's say though that in my patent document, I have three or four or five independent claims, and then I've got maybe a dozen dependent claims. So I have a total of like 15 or 20 claims in my patent. All you have to do is infringe one claim and you've infringed my patent, right? One claim and you've infringed my patent. In this case, they didn't infringe four claims of one patent, they infringed four separate patents, okay? So there was a total of five in the lawsuit. So they went and discovered at least one claim in each of those four patents that was infringed by Cisco. And now without getting into like too much legal, you know, detail, gory, ugly detail, there is something called literal infringement, which means that essentially, you know, in lay speak, you are practicing, you have a product or service in the marketplace that contains each and every element of at least one claim in your patent. And let's sim simplify this. An apparatus for sitting comprised of a back, a seat, and four legs. Literal infringement is if I have an apparatus for sitting, a chair in the marketplace that has a back, a seat, and four legs. If I do, I'm literally infringing. And by the way, if I have a chair that has three legs, a back, a seat, and only three legs, I'm not infringing because I don't have four legs on my chair. But if you have five legs, you're infringing because exactly. four is part of five. Yeah, because I still have four, right? I could have 10 legs and it does, it might be cool. It might be a great invention and it might be in and of itself patentable, right? Yeah. But it doesn't give me the right to make, use, sell, or offer to sell it in the marketplace where I have the patent because I still have four legs. So in a sense, if I dumb this down even more, uh, it means that, dumb though, isn't they, it? I mean, that was, yeah, well, hey, no. if I can understand it, then that means it's pretty dumb. Um, but they- I disagree it, with that, by the way. If, well, I gotta go to law school first, but yeah. But um, if, if basically it means that they, they copied they copied the product. I mean, well, not even like, like no, they, with variation. Exactly. Yeah, not exactly. And here's what I mean. Many people have patents and they also have products, right? I mean, unlike a trademark, you don't have to have a product in the marketplace to have a patent. With a trademark, as you know, trademarks go together like, you know, uh, peanut butter and jelly. Well, maybe not peanut butter and jelly. They're even tighter than peanut butter and jelly. And that is, if you do not have a product or service in the marketplace, you know, with that trademark, you don't have a trademark because trademarks are all about the, you know, representing a product or service. A patent, though, is not the same. A patent, you could have a patent and never have a product and still sue a company for patent infringement. Right. Still get a $1.9 billion verdict, you know. But the, the question, that what your thing is, did they copy the product? Well, you could have a patent and you could have a product and the two don't even, they're not, you know, you oh, might God, have, right. so I have, a, I have a patent on a chair with a back, a seat and one or more legs, right? All I sell in the marketplace are stools, a back and a seat and no leg, your one leg, one leg, right? Because one leg doesn't infringe four legs, right? I might have a whole product suite that does not, is not covered by my patent. So you, even though I have a patent on chairs with a back, a seat and four legs, 
you go to my, you go to the marketplace and you find all my three-legged chairs and you copy one, you're not infringing even though you've copied my product. I mean, you can copy anyone's product anytime and go to market. The only thing that prevents you from doing that is intellectual property, you wow. know, or business factors, but intellectual property is the only thing that legally prevents you from doing that. So what do you have? You see somebody has a product in the marketplace. First question is, is that thing any good? And do I want to copy it? And if the answer is hell, yes, that's a great product. I can make a lot of money. Then you got to ask yourself, is there some reason I can't copy it beyond my physical or mental or financial capabilities? Is there a trademark preventing me from copying it? Well, maybe if the product has a cool trademark, I can copy the product, but not the trademark, right? Right. There a trade secret protecting it. Well, Jimmy Crack Corn and I don't care because if I found out about it legally, if I reverse engineered it, if I discovered it legally, I can copy a trade secret right. product because trade yeah. secrets are only as valuable as your ability to keep them secret. Yeah. Three, is there a copyright? Well, if it's a product, probably doesn't relate to copyrights, right? I mean, maybe the the marketing material or stuff around it. Then is there a patent, right? That's then the big question. How do you know that? Go do a freedom to operate search. Yep. You find a patent. Then you have to ask yourself, okay, I want to copy their product. Can I still do that? Well, I look at their patent and I'm like, wow, their patent doesn't even cover their own product. You know, they patented a, bat, a, you know, a seat having, or I mean, a chair having a back, a seat and four legs. All their products are one-legged, two-legged and three-legged, right? I could copy all their products to my heart's content because the, I can, you can't infringe a product. You can only infringe patents, right? Yep. So that's kind of a long-winded response to your question of, do they actually have to go out and copy the product? And that doesn't mean infringement. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. I'm actually glad I asked the question because it was I, my way of thinking about it was like inverted. So that's, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so that is Cisco and Centripetal, and I'm sure Centripetal is celebrating, and Cisco is doing something less than celebrating. Yeah, well, that's that's another, like, really big question that I have is, I mean, what, it's not so much a question as it is a statement. I mean, this could, this kind of um, uh, uh, settlement, or it's not a settlement, but uh, damages award could could totally cripple even a business the size of Cisco. I mean, it could do it could do really big damage to a big company. Yeah. Now Cisco though, I think they generate like what, didn't you take a quick look? It was like 49 billion in revenue. Right. And then um, what's their, what's their, their, uh, profits? Google told me it was uh point, point one billion, um, in, um, let me Google it again. Yeah. Because so that's the, that's the thing is that, if you're a medium-sized company and you get hit with a billion-dollar verdict, you could be out of business, right. right? If you're a gigantic company, yeah, it's going to hurt. Your stock price might price might dip for a little while if the marketplace, you know, when the marketplace finds out about it. But ultimately, you know, Centripetal probably got—I don't know how big Centripetal is—but they probably got a bigger upside in terms of their value from this than Cisco than the hit Cisco took. I'm just guessing. So it says uh, 2018 numbers reported earnings of 0.1 billion with an annual revenue of 49.3 billion. 
So you have to assume those numbers have gone up. It was a 2.8% increase over 2017. So, but I, I mean- you know, Even look at their revenues though. If they have 50 billion in revenues and you're paying out 2 billion, you're, you know, that's like what? Um, the 4% of your total right. revenues? I mean, that's a lot. That can eat into your profit almost entirely, right? For yeah, in hit, a year. The bottom line, yeah, that's pretty ugly. But imagine though now, you're a small or medium-sized company and you're hit with a 10 or 15 or 20. And forget the verdict, forget that for a moment. You're a small or medium-sized company and you get sued. You don't even get an adverse verdict right. again. Well, yeah, imagine it was the other way around. Yeah, but you get sued. I mean, just getting sued is going to be crippling to you because even if you win. So I tried a case once with a client. They were sued for um, false patent marking. Okay, kind of a weird case. But anyway, false patent marking. Yeah, they were alleged to have put patent markings on products and brochures that uh, weren't covering the products. But anyway. We, they, they probably spent a half a million fees with us. And at the end of it all, we won. We won a jury verdict. And after the summation, my client came up and he gave me this big hug. He was all excited. You know, he kept calling me Tom Cruise. He kept saying, you're Tom Cruise, you know, from the movie, I think A Few Good Men. But anyway, Tom had more hair, was way better looking than I was. And believe it or not, was taller. But well, you both anyway, have the same, the same name. Yes, yes, at least I had that going for me. But anyway, he was all excited. But then after it kind of settled in, he realized that even though he won, he lost because he spent like we spent like two years on this. He was totally distracted, the senior executive we were working with, and they spent like a half million dollars and all it enabled them to do was keep doing what they were doing. Hmm. So if you're a small or medium sized company, patent infringement can be crippling. So it's even in some ways, it's more important if you're in that area that if you're launching new products, you want to make sure you don't infringe patents that are out there wherever you're selling your products. And remember, patents, they they cover, you know, there's different patents in different parts of the world. If you have a Chinese patent, you can only infringe it in China. If you have a US patent, you can only infringe infringe it in the US. So you have to do freedom to operate searching wherever you are going to do business, or it could be some pretty ugly react, you know, responses. It could yield some seriously damaging damages. And it's not just patents. I mean, it's also trademarks. You know, you build a whole thing around your, your brand, right? You got a new brand. Uh, I think we did a podcast once on that young girl that is one of my kids' friends who mm-hmm. brand lunacy. Oh, yeah. and, I mean, poor girl starts crying because there's some other company that might have trademark priority over her. That's a 19-year-old girl, but it, it, ha- it could happen to anybody because the damages could be millions with those. And if you're a company that only generates 5, 10, 15, $20 million a year in revenues, that's pretty ugly, right? Right. And that's painful because you have all your regular legal costs. I mean, you have legal issues all over the place when you're generating any kind of meaningful or hopeful amounts of revenues, you have all kinds of legal issues. You don't want something like this on top of that when there's such an easy solution, which is freedom to operate searching. You right. know, it's not that expensive as compared to the pain you're going to suffer downstream right. if you step into one of these landmines. Well, you just you just mentioned uh, a second ago a, a topic for another podcast, which I want to talk about, which is uh, 
uh, pat like international patent law and how yeah. you know countries react to uh, other countries um, businesses uh, infringing on intellectual property that was you know originated in their country. Yeah, and it's been a do one on that a Let's topic see. on international trade. So I'm just very curious yeah, to know. Also the issue of how, I mean patenting and preventing infringement of patents is so expensive. I mean, you need to have a plan. I mean, you can't just go into patenting or even developing new products willy-nilly. Or I should say, no one goes into developing new products willy-nilly. You have to have the same mentality when it comes to patenting. You know, like it can be very, very expensive. Even one patent, file it in 10 countries and you're going to spend a lot of money. Yeah. That's for another day. That's definitely yeah, well, this is was an awesome topic. I, I, I mean, all kidding aside, I was actually really excited when I read this article because, um, you know, how, how, when, when is the next time that 1.9 billion is going to be beaten in damages? So I, I remember when the first billion dollar verdict. When was that? I, it was a few years ago. There was a billion, and it was either a settlement or a verdict. And I thought, wow, a, a billion. billion. That's yeah. insane. Yeah. And now there's like a two billion. When you throw in the dam when you throw in the royalties, it's more like two and a half to three and a half. Well, we'll come back here in a few years and we'll do another podcast and we'll we'll reflect back in the days when the, the biggest damage was only one point nine billion. You got it. All right, Ray. All right, thanks everyone. Hey, if you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to share this uh, on LinkedIn. Um, leave us a comment, let us know what you think about this uh, case. And if you're on YouTube, hit the like button and subscribe and hit that bell icon so that you get notifications whenever we post a new video. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.